Appendix Three of Dread, A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp, by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Dread, Appendix Three, Church Action on Slavery. In reference to this important subject, we present a few extracts from the first and second chapters of the fourth part of The Key to Uncle Tom's Cabin. Let us review the declarations that have been made in the Southern Church and see what principles have been established by them. 1. That slavery is an innocent and lawful relation as much as that of parent and child, husband and wife, or any other lawful relation of society. Harmony present. South Carolina. 2. That it is consistent with the most fraternal regard for the good of the slave. Charleston Union Press, South Carolina. 3. That masters ought not to be disciplined for selling slaves without their consent. New School Presbyterian Church, Petersburg, Virginia. 4. That the right to buy, sell, and hold men for purposes of gain was given by express permission of God. James Smiley and his Presbyteries. 5. That the laws which forbid the education of the slave are right and meet the approbation of the reflecting part of the Christian community. Ibid. 6. That the fact of slavery is not a question of morals at all, but is purely one of political economy. Charleston Baptist Association. 7. The right of masters to dispose of the time of their slaves has been distinctly recognized by the creator of all things, Ibid. 8. That slavery, as it exists in these United States, is not a moral evil. Georgia Conference, Methodist. 9. That, without a new revelation from heaven, no man is entitled to pronounce slavery wrong. 10 that the separation of slaves by sale should be regarded as separation by death and the parties allowed to marry again. Shiloh Baptist Association and Savannah River Association. 11. That the testimony of colored members of the churches shall not be taken against a white person. Methodist Church. In addition, it has been plainly avowed by the expressed principles and practice of Christians of various denominations that they regard it right and proper to put down all inquiry upon the subject by lynch law. The old school Presbyterian Church, in whose communion the greater part of the slaveholding Presbyterians of the South are found, has never felt called upon to discipline its members for upholding a system which denies legal marriage to all slaves. Yet this church was agitated to its very foundation by the discussion of a question of morals which an impartial observer would probably consider of far less magnitude, namely, whether a man might lawfully marry his deceased wife's sister. For the time, all the strength and attention of the church seemed concentrated upon this important subject. The trial went from presbytery to synod, and from synod to general assembly, and ended with deposing a very respectable minister for this crime. Rev. Robert J. Breckinridge, D.D., 
a member of the Oldfield Assembly, has thus described the state of the slave population as to their marriage relations. The system of slavery denies to a whole class of human beings the sacredness of marriage and of home, compelling them to live in a state of concubinage, for, in the eye of the law, no colored slave man is the husband of any wife in particular, nor any slave woman the wife of any husband in particular. No slave man is the father of any child in particular, and no slave child is the child of any parent in particular. Now, had this church considered the fact that three millions of men and women were, by the laws of the land, obliged to live in this manner, as of equally serious consequence, it is evident from the ingenuity, argument, vehemence, biblical research, and untiring zeal which they bestowed upon Mr. McQueen's trial, that they could have made a very strong case with regard to this also. The history of the united action of denominations, which included churches both in the slave and free states, is a melancholy exemplification to a reflecting mind of that gradual deterioration of the moral sense which results from admitting any compromise, however slight, with an acknowledged sin. The best minds in the world cannot bear such a familiarity without injury to the moral sense. The facts of the slave system and of the slave laws, when presented to disinterested judges in Europe, have excited a universal outburst of horror. Yet in assemblies composed of the wisest and best clergymen of America, these things have been discussed from year to year, and yet brought no results that have, in the slightest degree, lessened the evil. The reason is this. A portion of the members of these bodies had pledged themselves to sustain the system, and peremptorily to refuse and put down all discussion of it, and the other part of the body did not consider this stand so taken as being of sufficiently vital consequence to authorize separation. Nobody will doubt that, had the southern members taken such a stand against the divinity of our Lord, the division would have been immediate and unanimous. But yet the southern members do maintain the right to buy and sell, lease, hire, and mortgage multitudes of men and women whom, with the same breath, they declare to be members of their churches and true Christians. The Bible declares of all such that they are the temples of the Holy Ghost, that they are the members of Christ's body, of his flesh and bones. Is not the doctrine that men may lawfully sell the members of Christ, his body, his flesh and bones, for the purpose of gain, as really a heresy as the denial of the divinity of Christ? And is it not a dishonor to him who is over all, God bless forever, to tolerate this dreadful opinion with its more dreadful consequences while the smallest heresies concerning the imputation of Adam's sin are pursued with eager vehemence? If the history of the action of all the bodies thus united can be traced downward, we shall find that, by reason of this tolerance of an admitted sin, the anti-slavery testimony has every year grown weaker and weaker. If we look over the history of all denominations, we shall see that at first they used very stringent language with relation to slavery. This is particularly the case with the Methodist and Presbyterian bodies, and for that reason we select these two as examples. 
the Methodist Society, especially as organized by John Wesley, was an anti-slavery society, and the Book of Discipline contained the most positive statutes against slaveholding. The history of the successive resolutions of the conference of this church is very striking. In 1780, before the church was regularly organized in the United States, they resolved as follows. The conference acknowledges that slavery is contrary to the laws of God, man, and nature, and hurtful to society, contrary to the dictates of conscience and true religion, and doing what we would not others should do unto us. In 1784, when the church was fully organized, rules were adopted prescribing the times at which members who were already slaveholders should emancipate their slaves. These rules were succeeded by the following, quote, Every person concerned who will not comply with these rules shall have liberty quietly to withdraw from our society within the twelve months following the notice being given him as aforesaid. Otherwise, the assistants shall exclude them from the society. No person holding slaves shall in the future be admitted into the society or to the Lord's Supper till he previously comply with these rules concerning slavery. Those who buy, sell, or give slaves away, unless on purpose to free them, shall be expelled immediately. Close quote. In 1801, we declare that we are more than ever convinced of the great evil of African slavery which still exists in these United States. Every member of this society who sells a slave shall immediately after full proof be excluded from the society, etc. The annual conferences are directed to draw up addresses for the gradual emancipation of the slaves to the legislature. Proper committees shall be appointed by the annual conference out of the most respectable of our friends for the conducting of the business and the presiding elders, deacons, and traveling preachers shall procure as many proper signatures as possible to the addresses and give all the assistance in their power in every respect to aid the committees and to further the blessed undertaking. Let this be continued from year to year till the desired end be accomplished. In 1836, let us notice the change. The General Conference held its annual session in Cincinnati and resolved as follows. Quote, resolved by the delegates of the annual conferences in General Conference assembled that they are decidedly opposed to modern abolitionism and fully disclaim any right, wish, or intention to interfere in the civil and political relation between master and slave, as it exists in the slaveholding states of this union. Quote. These resolutions were passed by a very large majority. An address was received from the Wesleyan Methodist Conference in England, affectionately remonstrating on the subject of slavery, the conference refused to publish it. In the pastoral address to the churches are these passages. Quote, it cannot be unknown to you that the question of slavery in the United States, by the constitutional compact which binds us together as a nation, is left to be regulated by several state legislatures themselves. 
and thereby is put beyond the control of the general government as well as that of all ecclesiastical bodies, it being manifest that in the slaveholding states themselves the entire responsibility of its existence or non-existence rests with those state legislatures. These facts, which are only mentioned here as a reason for the friendly admonition which we wish to give you, constrain us, as your pastors, who are called to watch over your souls, as they must give account, to exhort you to abstain from all abolition movements and associations, and to refrain from patronizing any of their publications, etc. The subordinate conferences show the same spirit. In 1836, the New York Annual Conference resolved that no one should be elected a deacon or elder in the church unless he would give a pledge to the church he would refrain from discussing this subject. Footnote 7. This resolution is given in Bernie's pamphlet. End footnote. In 1838, the conference resolved, as the sense of this conference, that any of its members or probationers who shall patronize Zion's watchman, either by writing in commendation of its character, by circulating it, recommending it to our people, or procuring subscribers, or by collecting or remitting monies, shall be deemed guilty of indiscretion and dealt with accordingly. Close quote. It will be recollected that Zion's Watchman was edited by LeBroy Sunderland, for whose abduction the state of Alabama had offered $50,000. In 1840, the General Conference at Baltimore passed the resolution that we have already quoted, forbidding preachers to allow colored persons to give testimony in their churches. It has been computed that about 80,000 people were deprived of the right of testimony by this act. This Methodist church subsequently broke into a northern and southern conference. The southern conference is avowedly all pro-slavery, and the northern conference has still in its communion slaveholding conferences and members. Of the northern conferences, one of the largest, the Baltimore, passed the following, quote, Resolved that this conference disclaims having any fellowship with abolitionism. On the contrary, while it is determined to maintain its well-known and long-established position by keeping the traveling preachers composing its own body free from slavery, it is also determined not to hold connection with any ecclesiastical body that shall make non-slaveholding a condition of membership in the church, but to stand by and maintain the discipline as it is. Quote. The following extract is made from an address of the Philadelphia Annual Conference to the societies under its care, dated Wilmington, Delaware, April 7, 1847. Quote, if the plans of separation gives us the pastoral care of you, it remains to inquire whether we have done anything, as a conference or as men, to forfeit your confidence and affection. We are not advised that even in the great excitement which has distressed you for some months past, anyone has impeached our moral conduct or charged us with unsoundness in doctrine or corruption or tyranny in the administration of discipline. But we learn that the simple cause of the unhappy excitement among you is that some suspect us 
or affect to suspect us of being abolitionists. Yet no particular act of the conference, or any particular member thereof, is adduced as the ground of the erroneous and injurious suspicion. We would ask you, brethren, whether the conduct of our ministry among you for sixty years past ought not to be sufficient to protect us from this charge, whether the question we have been accustomed for a few years past to put to candidates for admission among us, namely, are you an abolitionist? And without each one answered in the negative, he was not received, ought not to protect us from the charge? Whether the action of the last conference on this particular matter ought not to satisfy any fair and candid mind that we are not and do not desire to be abolitionists. We cannot see how we can be regarded as abolitionists without the ministers of the Methodist Episcopal Church South being considered in the same light. Wishing you all heavenly benedictions, we are, dear brethren, yours in Jesus Christ. J.P. Durbin, J. Kennedy, Ignatius T. Cooper, William H. Gilder, Joseph Castle, Committee. These facts sufficiently define the position of the Methodist Church. The history is melancholy, but instructive. The history of the Presbyterian Church is also of interest. In 1793, the following note to the Eighth Commandment was inserted in the Book of Discipline as expressing the doctrine of the Church upon slaveholding. Quote, 1 Timothy 1.10 The law is made for man-stealers. This crime among the Jews exposed the perpetrators of it to be capital punishment. Exodus 21.15 And the apostle here classes them with sinners of the first rank. The word he uses in its original import comprehends all who are concerned in bringing any of the human race into slavery or in retaining them in it Hominem fures qui servos vel liberos abducunt retinent vindum vel emunt. Stealers of men are all those who bring off slaves or freemen and keep, sell, or buy them. To steal a free man, says Grotius, is the highest kind of theft. In other instances, we only steal human property, but when we steal or retain men in slavery, we seize those who, in common with ourselves, are constituted by the original grant lords of the earth. No rules of church discipline were enforced, and members whom this passage declared guilty of this crime remained undisturbed in its communion as ministers and elders. This inconsistency was obviated in 1816 by expunging the passage from the Book of Discipline. In 1818 it adopted an expression of its views on slavery. This document is a long one, conceived and written in a very Christian spirit. The Assembly's Digest says, page 341, that it was unanimously adopted. The following is its testimony as to the nature of slavery. Quote, we consider the voluntary enslaving of one part of the human race by another as a gross violation of the most precious and sacred rights of human nature, as utterly inconsistent with the law of God, which requires us to love our neighbor as ourselves, and as totally irreconcilable with the spirit and principles of the gospel of Christ, which enjoin that all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them. 
Slavery creates a paradox in the moral system. It exhibits rational, accountable, and immortal beings in such circumstances as scarcely to leave them the power of moral action. It exhibits them as dependent on the will of others, whether they shall receive religious instruction, whether they shall know and worship the true God, whether they shall enjoy the ordinances of the gospel, whether they shall perform the duties and cherish the endearments of husbands and wives, parents and children, neighbors and friends, whether they shall preserve their chastity and purity, or regard the dictates of justice and humanity. Such are some of the consequences of slavery, consequences not imaginary, but which connect themselves with its very existence. The evils to which the slave is always exposed often take place in fact and in their very worst degree and form. And where all of them do not take place, as we rejoice to say that in many instances through the influence of the principles of humanity and religion on the minds of masters, they do not, still the slave is deprived of his natural right, degraded as a human being and exposed to the danger of passing into the hands of a master who may inflict upon him all the hardships and injuries which inhumanity and avarice may suggest. Quote. This language was certainly decided, and it was unanimously adopted by slaveholders and non-slaveholders. Certainly, one might think the time of redemption was drawing nigh. The Declaration goes on to say, quote, It is manifestly the duty of all Christians who enjoy the light of the present day, when the inconsistency of slavery both with the dictates of humanity and religion has been demonstrated, and is generally seen and acknowledged to use honest, earnest, unworried endeavors to correct the errors of former times, and as speedily as possible to efface this blot on our holy religion, and to obtain the complete abolition of slavery throughout Christendom and throughout the world. Close quote. Here we have the Presbyterian Church, slaveholding and non-slaveholding, virtually formed into one great abolition society as we have seen the methodist was the assembly then goes on to state that the slaves are not at present prepared to be free that they tenderly sympathize with the portion of the church and country that has had this evil entailed upon them where as they say a great and most virtuous part of the community abhor slavery and wish its extermination but they exhort them to commence immediately the work of instructing slaves with a view to preparing them for freedom and to let no greater delay take place than a regard to public welfare indispensably demands, to be governed by no other considerations than an honest and impartial regard to the happiness of the injured party, uninfluenced by the expense and its inconvenience which such regard may involve. It warns against unduly extending this plea of necessity, against making it a cover for the love and practice of slavery. It ends by recommending that anyone who shall sell a fellow Christian without his consent to be immediately disciplined and suspended. If we consider that this was unanimously adopted by the slaveholders and all, and grant, as we certainly do, that it was adopted in all honestly and good faith, we shall surely expect something from it. 
we should expect forthwith the organizing of a set of common schools for the slave children, for an efficient religious ministration, for an entire discontinuance of trading in Christian slaves, for laws which make the family relations sacred. Was any such thing done or attempted? Alas, two years after this came the admission of Missouri, and the increase of demand in the southern slave market and the internal slave trade. Instead of school teachers, they had slave traders. Instead of gathering schools, they gathered slave coffles. Instead of building schoolhouses, they built slave pens and slave prisons, jails, barracoons, factories, or whatever the trade pleases to term them. And so went the plan of gradual emancipation. In 1834, sixteen years after, a committee of the Senate of Kentucky, in which state slavery is generally said to exist in its mildest form, appointed to make a report on the condition of the slaves, gave the following picture of their condition. First, as to their spiritual condition, they say, After making all reasonable allowances, our colored population can be considered at the most but semi-heathen. Brutal stripes and all the various kinds of personal indignities are not the only species of cruelty which slavery licenses. The law does not recognize the family relations of the slave, and extends to him no protection in the enjoyment of domestic endearments. The members of a slave family may be forcibly separated so that they shall never more meet until the final judgment, and cupidity often induces masters to practice what the law allows. Brothers and sisters, parents and children, husbands and wives are torn asunder and permitted to see each other no more. These acts are daily occurring in the midst of us. The shrieks and agony often witnessed on such occasions proclaim with trumpet tongue the iniquity and cruelty of our system. The cries of those sufferers go up to the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. There is not a neighborhood where these heart-rending scenes are not displayed. There is not a village or road that does not behold the sad procession of manacled outcasts whose chains and mournful countenances tell that they are exiled by force from all that their hearts hold dear. Our church, years ago, raised its voice of solemn warning against this flagrant violation of every principle of mercy, justice, and humanity. Yet we blush to announce to you and to the world that this warning has been often disregarded even by those who hold to our communion. Cases have occurred in our own denomination where professors of the religion of mercy have torn the mother from her child and sent her into a merciless and returnless exile. Yet acts of discipline have rarely followed such conduct. The Honorable James G. Burney, for years a resident of Kentucky, in his pamphlet amends the word rarely by substituting never. What could show more plainly the utter inefficiency of the past act of the assembly and the necessity of adopting some measures more efficient? In 1835, therefore, the subject was urged upon the General Assembly, entreating them to carry out the principles and designs they had avowed in 1818. Mr. Stewart of Illinois, in a speech he made upon the subject, said, I hope this assembly are prepared to come out fully and declare their sentiments that slaveholding is a most flagrant and heinous sin. 
Let us not pass it by in this indirect way, while so many thousands and tens of thousands of our fellow creatures are writhing under the lash, often inflicted to by ministers and elders of the Presbyterian Church. In this church a man may take a free-born child, force it away from its parents to whom God gave it in charge, saying, Bring it up for me, and sell it as a beast, or hold it in perpetual bondage, and not only escape corporal punishment, but really be esteemed an excellent Christian. Nay, even ministers of the gospel and doctors of divinity may engage in this unholy traffic, and yet sustain their high and holy calling. Elders, ministers, and doctors of divinities are, with both hands, engaged in the practice. One would have thought facts like these, stated in a body of Christians, were enough to wake the dead. But alas, we can become accustomed to very awful things. No action was taken upon these remonstrances except to refer them to a committee, to be reported on at the next session in 1836. The moderator of the assembly in 1836 was a slaveholder, Dr. T. S. Witherspoon, the same who said to the editor of The Emancipator, I draw my warrant from the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to hold my slaves in bondage. The principle of holding the heathen in bondage is recognized by God. When the tardy process of the law is too long in redressing our grievances, we at the South have adopted the summary process of Judge Lynch. The majority of the committee appointed made a report as follows. Whereas the subject of slavery is inseparably connected with the laws of many of the states in this union, with which it is by no means proper for an ecclesiastical judicature to interfere, and involves many considerations in regard to which great diversity of opinion and intensity of feeling are known to exist in the churches represented in this assembly, and whereas there is great reason to believe that any action on the part of this assembly in reference to this subject would tend to distract and divide our churches, and would probably in no wise promote the benefit of those whose welfare is immediately contemplated in the memorials in question. Therefore resolved, one, that it is not expedient for the assembly to take any further order in relation to this subject. 2. That as the notes which have been expunged from our public formularies, and which some of the memorials referred to in the committee request to have restored, were introduced irregularly, never had the sanction of the Church, and therefore never possessed any authority. The General Assembly has no power, nor would they think it expedient to assign them a place in the authorized standards of the Church. The minority of the committee, as Reverend Messrs. Dickey and Beeman, reported as follows. Resolved, one, that the buying, selling, or holding a human being as property is in the sight of God a heinous sin, and ought to subject the doer of it to the censures of the church. Two, that it is the duty of everyone, and especially every Christian, who may be involved in this sin, to free himself from its entanglement without delay. Three, that it is the duty of everyone, especially of every Christian, in the meekness and firmness of the gospel, to plead the cause of the poor and needy by testifying against the principle and practice of slaveholding, and to use his best endeavors to deliver the church of God from the evil, 
and to bring about the emancipation of the slaves in these United States and throughout the world. The slaveholding delegates, to the number of 48, met apart and resolved that if their General Assembly shall undertake to exercise authority on the subject of slavery so as to make it an immorality or shall in any way declare that Christians are criminal in holding slaves, that a declaration shall be presented by the Southern delegation declining their jurisdiction in the case, and our determination not to submit to such decision. In view of these conflicting reports, the Assembly resolved as follows. Inasmuch as the Constitution of the Presbyterian Church, in its preliminary and fundamental principles, declares that no church judicatories ought to pretend to make laws to bind the conscience in virtue of their own authority, and as the urgency of the business of the assembly and the shortness of time during which they can continue in session render it impossible to deliberate and decide judiciously on the subject of slavery in its relation to the church, therefore resolved that this whole subject be indefinitely postponed. The amount of the slave trade at the time, when the General Assembly refused to act upon the subject of slavery at all, may be inferred from the following items. The Virginia Times, in an article published in this very year of 1836, estimated the number of slaves exported for sale from that state alone during the twelve months preceding at 40,000. The Natchez, Mississippi Courier, says that in the same year the states of Alabama, Missouri, and Arkansas imported 250,000 slaves from the more northern states. If we deduct from these all who may be supposed to have immigrated with their masters, still what an immense trade is here indeed. Two years after, the General Assembly, by a sudden and very unexpected movement, passed a vote ascending without trial from the communion of the church, four synods comprising the most active and decided anti-slavery portions of the church. The reasons alleged were doctrinal differences and ecclesiastical practices inconsistent with Presbyterianism. By this act, about 500 ministers and 60,000 members were cut off from the Presbyterian church. That portion of the Presbyterian Church, called New School, considering this act unjust, refused to assent to it, joined the extended synods, and formed themselves into the New School General Assembly. In this communion only three slaveholding presbyteries remained. In the old there were between thirty and forty. The course of the Old School Assembly, after the separation in relation to the subject of slavery, may be best expressed by quoting one of their resolutions, passed in 1845. Having some decided anti-slavery members in its body, and being, moreover, addressed on the subject of slavery by associated bodies, they presented in this year the following deliberate statement of their policy. Minutes for 1845, page 18. Resolved 1 that the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in the United States was originally organized and has since continued the bond of union in that church upon the conceded principles that the existence of domestic slavery, under the circumstances in which it is found in the southern part of the country, is no bar to Christian communion. 2. 
that the petitions that ask the assembly to make the holding of slaves in itself a matter of discipline do virtually require this judicatory to dissolve itself and abandon the organization under which by the divine blessing it has so long prospered the tendency is evidently to separate the northern from the southern portion of the church a result which every good christian must deplore as tending the dissolution of the union of our beloved country and which every enlightened christian will oppose as bringing about a ruinous and unnecessary schism between brethren who maintain a common faith yeas ministers and elders one sixty eight nays ministers and elders thirteen it is scarcely necessary to add a comment to this very explicit declaration. It is the plainest possible disclaimer of any protest against slavery. The plainest possible statement that the existence of the ecclesiastical organization is of more importance than all the moral and social considerations which are involved in a full defense and practice of American slavery. The next year, a large number of petitions and remonstrances were presented requesting the assembly to utter additional testimony against slavery. In reply to the petitions, the General Assembly reaffirmed all their former testimonies on the subject of slavery for sixty years back, and also affirmed that the previous year's declaration must not be understood as a retraction of that testimony. In other words, they expressed it as their opinion, in the words of 1818, that slavery is wholly opposed to the law of God and totally irreconcilable with the precepts of the gospel of Christ. And yet, that they had formed their church organization upon the conceded principle that the existence of it, under the circumstances in which it is found in the southern states of the Union, is no bar to Christian communion. Some members protested against this action, Minutes, 1846, Overture number 17. Great hopes were at first entertained of the New School body. As a body, it was composed mostly of anti-slavery men. It had in it three synods whose anti-slavery opinions and actions had been, to say the least, one very efficient cause for their excision from the church. It had only three slave-holding presbyteries, the power was all in its own hands. Now, if ever, was their time to cut this loathsome encumbrance wholly adrift and stand up, in this age of concession and conformity to the world, a purely protesting church, free from all complicity with this most dreadful national immorality. On the first session of the General Assembly, this course was most vehemently urged by many petitions and memorials. These memorials were referred to a committee of decided anti-slavery men. The argument on one side was that the time was now come to take decided measures to cut free wholly from all pro-slavery complicity and avow their principles with decision, even though it should repel all such churches from their communion as were not prepared for immediate emancipation. On the other hand, the majority of the committee were urged by opposing considerations. The brethren from slave states made to them representations somewhat alike to these. Quote, brethren, our hearts are with you. 
We are with you in faith, in charity, in prayer. We sympathized in the injury that had been done you by excision. We stood by you then, and we are ready to stand by you still. We have no sympathy with the party that have expelled you, and we do not wish to go back to them. As to this matter of slavery, we do not differ from you. We consider it an evil. We mourn and lament over it. We are trying by gradual and peaceable means to exclude it from our churches. We are going as far in advance of the sentiment of our churches as we consistently can. We cannot come up to more decided action without losing our hold over them, and, as we think, throwing back the cause of emancipation. If you begin in this decided manner, we cannot hold our churches in the Union. They will divide and go to the old school. Close quote. Here was a very strong plea made by good and sincere men. It was an appeal, too, to the most generous feelings of the heart. It was, in effect, saying, quote, Brothers, we stood by you and fought your battles when everything was going against you, and now that you have the power in your hands, are you going to use it so as to cast us out? Close quote. These men, strong anti-slavery men as they were, were affected. One member of the committee foresaw and feared the result. He felt and suggested that the course proposed conceded the whole question. The majority thought, on the whole, that it was best to postpone the subject. The committee reported that the applicants, for reasons satisfactory to themselves, had withdrawn their papers. The next year, in 1839, the subject was resumed, and it was again urged that the assembly should take high and decided and unmistakable ground. And certainly, if we consider that all this time not a single church had emancipated its slaves, and that the power of the institution was everywhere stretching and growing and increasing, it would certainly seem that something more efficient was necessary than a general understanding that the church agreed with the testimony delivered in 1818. It was strongly represented that it was time something was done. This year, the assembly decided to refer this subject to presbyteries to do what they deemed advisable. The words employed were these, quote, solemnly referring the whole to the lower judicatories to take such action as in their judgments is most judicious and adapted to remove the evil, Close quote. The Reverend George Beecher moved to insert the word moral before evil. They declined. Footnote 8. Godel's History of the Great Struggle Between Freedom and Slavery. End footnote. This brought, in 1840, a much larger number of memorials and petitions, and very strong attempts were made by the abolitionists to obtain some decided action. The committee this year referred to what had been done last year and declared it inexpedient to do anything further. The subject was indefinitely postponed. At this time it was resolved that the assembly should meet only once in three years. Accordingly, it did not meet until 1843. In 1843, several memorials were again presented, and some resolutions were offered to the assembly, of which this was one. Minutes of the General Assembly for 1843, page 15. Resolved. 
that we affectionately and earnestly urge upon the ministers, sessions, presbyteries, and synods connected with this assembly, that they treat this as all other sins of great magnitude, and by a diligent, kind, and faithful application of the means which God has given them, by instruction, remonstrance, reproof, and effective discipline, seek to purify the church of this great iniquity. This resolution they declined. They passed the following. Whereas there is in this assembly great diversity of opinion as to the proper and best mode of action on the subject of slavery, and whereas in such circumstances any expression of sentiment would carry with it but little weight, as it would be passed by a small majority, and must operate to produce alienation and division, and whereas the assembly of 1839, with great unanimity, referred the whole subject to the lower judicatories, to take such order as in their judgment might be adapted to remove the evil, resolved that the assembly do not think it for the edification of the church for this body to take any action on the subject. They, however, passed the following. Resolved that the fashionable amusement of promiscuous dancing is so entirely unscriptural and eminently and exclusively that of the world which lieth in wickedness, and so wholly inconsistent with the spirit of Christ, and with that propriety of Christian deportment, and that purity of heart which his followers are bound to maintain, as to render it not only improper and injurious for professing Christians either to partake in it, or to qualify their children for it, by teaching them the art, but also to call for the faithful and judicious exercise of discipline on the part of church sessions, when any of the members of their churches have been guilty. Thus has the matter gone on from year to year ever since. In 1856, we were sorry to say that we can report no improvement in the action of the great ecclesiastical bodies on the subject of slavery, but rather deterioration. Notwithstanding all the aggressions of slavery, and notwithstanding the constant developments of its horrible influence, in corrupting and degrading the character of the nation, as seen in the mean, vulgar, assassin-like outrages in our National Congress, and the brutal, bloodthirsty, fiend-like proceedings in Kansas, connived at and protected, if not directly sanctioned, and in part instigated by our National Government? Notwithstanding all this, the great ecclesiastical organizations seem less disposed than ever before to take any efficient action on the subject. This was manifest in the General Conference of the Methodist Episcopal Church North, held in Indianapolis during the spring of the present year, and in the General Assemblies of the Presbyterian Church, held at New York at about the same time. True, a very large minority in the Methodist Conference resisted with great energy the action, or rather no action, of the majority and gave fearless utterance to the most noble sentiments, but in the final result the numbers were against them. The same thing was true, to some extent, in the New School Presbyterian General Assembly, though here the anti-slavery utterances were, on the whole, inferior to those in the Methodist Conference. In both bodies the pack-threads and cushions and caulkers and bonnies are numerous and have the predominant influence while the Dixons and Ruskins are fewer and have far less power. The representations, therefore, in the body of the work 
though very painful, are strictly just. Individuals everywhere in the free states and in some of the slave states are most earnestly struggling against the prevailing corruption. But the churches, as such, are for the most part still on the wrong side. There are churches free from this stain, but they are neither numerous nor popular. For an illustration of the lynching of Father Dixon, see Keys to Uncle Tom's Cabin, Part 3, Chapter 8. End of Appendix 3, Church Action on Slavery. End of Dread, A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp by Harriet Beecher Stowe.